This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 21st, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. In the context of international trade, there's not much that's more confusing than anti-dumping duties. So much of it is done to protect U.S. industries, but what are the unintended consequences? Cato's Dan Eikenson calls them tariff by fiat. We spoke earlier this month. Among the uh, many facets of trade policy, we have anti-dumping duties. Um, How many countries levy these, and uh, how does the United States do it? Well, the U.S. has its own anti-dumping law dating back to 1921. Uh, Most countries in the world have anti-dumping laws now as well, following the U.S. example, because the United States brought anti-dumping into the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, uh, which became the WTO, uh, and it's used to remedy what is considered to be unfair trade. It's used when domestic industries feel that they are materially injured by reason of less than fair value imports, which means imports that are priced lower in the United States than in their home market, uh, that duties can be imposed. Uh, There are many, many problems with with the anti-dumping law. It's one of many laws that uh, we have uh, evaluated and that we have that we take issue with, but the anti-dumping law really goes out of its way to reward litigious petitioning industries, typically the steel industry or chemical industries, upstream industries uh, that want to compel their customers, downstream steel-using firms, downstream chemical-using firms, uh, into having no choices but to to purchase domestically. And uh, under the law, the petitioning industry can make its claims and demonstrate that it is materially injured. Uh, but those who are adversely affected by the tariffs, meaning the U.S. customers, don't get a shot at all uh, in, in the in the uh, litigation process. Their views uh, don't get factored in to any decisions made by the agencies that, that levy the duties. So uh, it's really, we're hurting ourselves uh, dramatically. And year after year, uh, the, the anti-dumping law gets more venomous. Uh, uh, provisions are changed to make it easier to uh, bring cases, to find injury, and to find dumping margins, and to find extremely high uh, dumping margins. And it, this has gone sort of part and parcel with trade liberalization. As we have opened up our economy, as the rest of the world has opened up their economies, uh, you know, U.S. policymakers have insisted over the years that, well, if we're going to be exposing ourselves to more trade, we have to uh, strengthen the anti-dumping law so that uh, we can uh, stop trade that is uh, that is causing injury to our domestic industries. And this is being used more and more indiscriminately as as time goes on. And we've been committed to doing something about it. Uh, I came to Cato almost 20 years ago. Uh, to start up the project on anti-dumping reform. And we've written uh, maybe 15 policy analyses, a book, and uh, testified and and done a lot to try to rein in the anti-dumping law. But alas, uh, it is still here. So uh, let's understand what dumping is. Um, If I am a new competitor in some industry uh, and I have uh, deep-pocketed investors, I may be uh, encouraged to sell products at or below cost, engage in effectively negative cash flow in order to grab 
some market share is dumping uh practically speaking any different from that that's that's a good way to lead into this 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 discussion here because defenders of the anti-dumping law say we need it to counter international price discrimination charging different prices in different markets and to counter selling below cost and in an international context but if you think about it in a purely domestic setting there's absolutely nothing objectionable about charging different prices in different markets if you're well known in your in, in on the east coast and you're 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 well known to have a you know a high quality product you can charge a premium if you're not well known on the west coast and you want to enter that market one strategy would be to lower your prices and there's there's nothing wrong with that that's price discrimination in the international context uh you you get hit with 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 uh, anti-dumping duties likewise selling below cost um selling below cost to me is evidence that there is no dumping at all because the the theory goes that a, a a foreign firm is 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 made it's is it's made possible for the foreign firm to dump by having a protected home market where he can charge higher prices and reap super normal profits and then cross subsidize uh, below cost sales in an export market well if he has below cost sales uh, in 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 the home market those those average costs uh, th- those sales are um, taken away when you calculate the average dumping margin. So what it does is it causes the comparison in the home market, the comparison price to rise. But that, 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 I've gone off a little bit from the main point, which is that in a domestic setting, selling below cost happens all the time. You you know you you have lost leaders. You sell complementary products. Uh, there are many reasons to try to think long term and and where the the optimal action is to sell below cost. But if it's done in an international setting, it's dumping and it's penalized. What are the industries where we see this uh, most perniciously? You mentioned steel, and and that one seems like a pretty obvious example. But w- do we see it elsewhere? Yeah, we've seen it. In, it it's, it's typically commodity products, upstream products, high fixed cost industries. Um, that Inputs. Have, yeah, inputs. And so, I mean, really, the steel industry has has been behind the changes that we've seen to the anti-dumping law, which has made it more pernicious, that has given it uh, uh, sharper teeth. It orchestrated a shift in the agency that oversaw and administered the law from the Treasury Department, which has sort of a a broad multilateralist view of of the economy, and, and switched it over to the Commerce Department, which goes to bat for domestic industries and uh, has as its mantra as, as on its on the website of the agency that uh, administers anti-dumping it, it it says we're here to enforce the anti-dumping laws and to make sure that unfair trade doesn't put us at a disadvantage meanwhile the same agency counsels domestic industries like the steel industry uh, uh on how to uh, perfect their petitions so, so they, they they advise them and then they adjudicate uh, at the same time um and uh so most of our anti-dumping measures that are in place and throughout the years have been on upstream steel products like hot rolled steel, cold rolled steel, corrosion resistant steel, which are all inputs to downstream steel using uh, products. And, uh, and in fact, I was talking about changes to the law. This paper that I just wrote um, that we just published a couple of weeks ago focuses on um, 
uh, on something called particular market situation, which gives the Commerce Department license to completely disregard record evidence if it can make a case that 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 the, the cost data of the responding company doesn't adequately reflect market conditions, and they can just totally get rid of it. And as a result of these changes, which came in, 19, in, in 2015, we've seen a, a, a real uh, dramatic surge in the use of anti-dumping. Some people want to attribute that to having a sort of a pliant commerce department under the Trump administration. That may explain some of it. But the fact is, it's much, much easier now to get anti-dumping duties imposed, to bring the cases. Uh, and so th from, 19, uh, from 2010 to 2019, we had an average of about 28 case initiations per year. From 2016 to 2019, these are four years after the, this, these, these legal changes took effect, there were 38. And in the first half of this year, we've had 60. So we're on, on target for 120, a huge increase uh, because it's been made so accessible. When I hear particular market situation, what I immediately think <laughs> is supply and demand doesn't work in this market. That's, that's is, is that essentially the claim? So particular market situation was developed because, well, there was a time when the United States felt obligated to change its uh, calculation methodology with respect to China. Right now, it still uses something called a non-market economy methodology. And that was supposed to end in December of 2016. So, um, but, but the U.S. decided we we're not going to change it. We're not obligated to change it. It became a bit of a dispute. And right now, there's sort of a detente on that front. But they, they took this particular market situation, which would give commerce officials an excuse to say, look, we can't trust that supply and demand are, are in play here. Uh, th there's too many artificial uh, impediments or in in interventions. So we're just going to disregard this data and estimate ourselves what the data should be. And so instead of applying it to China, because they're still using what's called the non-market economy methodology there, they're now using particular market situation to really uh, penalize market economies, particularly the Koreans uh, and the Thais and the Indonesians and the Indians. And um, Basically, the, the, the rationale for going after Korea, for example, is the Chinese have flooded the world market with too much steel. And as a result, steel producers in Korea and downstream steel users that make corrosion-resistant steel or uh, oil country tubular goods have access to lower cost inputs. So we can't take their uh, supply and demand information, their cost information at face value, and we're going to intervene and adjust it. Well, this is not a particular market situation. This is a market situation that affects the entire world, including the United States. The U.S. has opted to, instead of allowing its downstream users access to cheap steel on account of uh, China's overproduction, we've imposed tariffs on that steel, and that hurts our downstream users. And now our downstream users are bringing anti-dumping cases against Korea's downstream users. So there, there are many ways to try to address this or redress this. Uh, the U.S. has chosen the most protectionist route in, in every case. Going forward, um, anti-dumping as a claim uh, should not be a part of future trade agreements? Well, anti-dumping is sort of an exception to most trade agreements. Uh, the United States has always insisted on it. And it's, you know, when, uh, you know, in the 19th century, Congress took control of trade policy as it should. 
uh, in the by the tw- in the 20th century, as trade started to expand, Congress started to give more power to the executive branch or pass more laws. And of course, we needed the executive branch to uh, to implement those laws. And anti-dumping isn't going away anytime soon. It, in fact, you most members of Congress will not agree to trade liberalization with, with, without um, have, you know, U.S. industries having access to uh, contingent protection. But it's a law that we don't need because we have other trade laws that uh, protect domestic industries from surges. There's something called the safeguard law. And, and, and under, under, under the safeguard law, we don't have to demonstrate that there is unfair trade, that there is some sort of dumping going on. The industry just says, hey, we're hurt by the surge in imports and we need some temporary relief. And this is what we're going to do to prevent uh, so that we don't have to come back uh, and ask for help in the future. With the dumping law, uh, we are penalizing U.S. companies primarily for actions that can be redressed in a fair, more fair-minded way. And uh, yeah, so, But the law's been here for a long time. We're still uh, trying to point out the, the massive costs it has on downstream users, as well as U.S. exporters who are now uh, the subject of a lot of anti-dumping cases uh, launched by foreign governments. <laughs> so we started the problem in an effort to protect upstream industries. Other countries retaliated. And in both cases, the people, uh, at least in the U.S., that have paid the price are producers who would like to buy their inputs on an open market. That's right. So the, the, the large uh, U.S. industries that rely on imported intermediate goods see their cost of production go way up. Uh, and then when they try to produce their products at those higher costs and sell them in the U.S. market, they're, they're selling at a disadvantage. And they're also getting targeted when they want to sell in foreign markets because, you know, the, many governments have said, you know, the United States has used this law and uh, it's, wow, it, it, it gets the job done politically. I can give favors uh, legally to uh, to the industries that uh, I'm sort of beholden to, and, and and that's the formula that that is working around the world. And uh, it's uh, we have to do something about it because uh, it's just at some point we're gonna we're gonna ask you know why do we even bother trading if it's so subject to these spurious uh, and capricious actions. Dan Eikenson directs the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>